Uh, we're going to be continuing our message series to the Gospel of Mark. So open up to chapter 9. Uh, as you guys open there, I want to just say something real quick. Um, it's just kind of a good, good thing to continue to keep in the forefront of our mind. And I always like to ask these questions myself, personally, because I always like to really try to get to the root of it. And uh, you know, sometimes I ask myself, like, why, why do we even gather? Like, what's the purpose and the point of doing this? Like, gathering on Sunday mornings and doing the things that we do here like this and um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions that sometimes we can think that this is church, that this is church. And in reality, this is a part of the church, of what we do. I mean, gathering as a large group on Sunday mornings. But really, the broader fanning out of the church is not just this. This is a part of it. This is where we come, we hear God's word, we meet as a public gathering, as a public group. If you're family, you got kids, you drop your kids off once a week, they go get trained in God's word. They help equip you to be able to be better trainers of your children and whatnot. Uh, we have an opportunity to sing music together because, uh, again, sometimes it just doesn't sound as great when it's just you and maybe three of your kids because you probably don't have a good voice. And, um, but there's something beautiful about being able to get a bunch of people together and singing together and having some good gifted musicians lead us and whatnot and hearing God's Word taught. So, so there's benefit and value to this. And yet, at the end of the day, this is not all that we are, and this is not all that we want to be, because really at the end of the day, the church is about what we do beyond this, how we live out our faith, how we raise our kids, if you're a dad, if you're a husband, how you treat your wife, if you're a business owner, entrepreneur, how you deal with your business clients, how you deal with the, your employees, uh, you live in a neighborhood, how you deal, deal with your neighbors, how you love other people, how you treat your family members, things of that nature. That's how it really works out. Uh, in a broader scope and broader scale of life. And so we want to challenge you. We just realize that, you know, doing this is great, but this can't be the sum total of it all. It has to have some sort of outlet and overflow. It's one of the reasons why we encourage you guys to get involved in community groups. We've got lots of community groups going on. We provide training if you would like to lead a community group. There's lots of things that happen. And so just my, I guess my point in saying all this is that we're a family. That's really what we are. We're a family. And I think sometimes it's easy for us to kind of get in this sort of consumeristic mentality where we come to church and we consume. We ask, what's in it for me? What can I take? What can I be blessed by? What can I eat? What can I participate in? What can I benefit from? And there's not a lot of bigger, broader questions of how can I give back? How can I lay my life down? How can I sacrifice? How can I give? How can I financially support? Those are the questions we feel that rounded off Christians, mature Christians, really ask. We believe really at the end of the day because that's what God does. God is not a consumer. God is a giver. God's an overflower. God blesses. And we believe that as the gospel impacts us and changes us, then we become like God. We become a giver. We become generous with all that we have. And so in a lot of ways, the starting points for most of us is this. So again, I guess in short, my challenge is this, is that if you come Sunday mornings, great. We, we just invite you to enjoy, to be fed God's word. But at the end of the day, let this be a door or an avenue that leads you into the broader outlet of the body. Get involved in a community group. Get involved in serving. Ask bigger, broader questions. How can you get involved? How can you serve? What are the areas of need in the church? How can you be a part of being uh, in this body, giving to this body, supporting this body, thereby others will be blessed? And I really believe that this is just sort of the way that God typically works. As we live with the mentality of seeking to bless other people, 
Um, one of the reasons why we don't do that is because we think, I don't have anything to give. I don't have anything to contribute. I don't have much to give out because maybe you're emotionally lacking. Maybe spiritually you feel like you're lacking. There's sort of this strange way by which God works is that when we give out by faith, because we're like, I don't have anything to give, I'll give out. When we give out, God has this strange way of giving back to us, supporting us, contributing to us, uh, stabilizing us, strengthening us. So again, it's the walk of faith that I would challenge you guys to consider as to how to use Sunday mornings like this as a means to get into the broader body of serving in the church. So that's my nice little, I don't know, 90-second exhortation to you guys. You're welcome. Okay. Mark chapter 9, here's what we're going to be doing here today. We're going to be uh, taking a look at this continuation of the story of Mark telling us who Jesus is. One of the constant ongoing themes that Mark has been pointing out to us, actually I should say three main ongoing themes, I'm sure there's others, but these are the three dominant ones as I see them. First of all is the centrality of Jesus. We see that Jesus is central to everything that Mark wants us to know about Jesus. He even starts off the entire gospel by saying this is the good news, the gospel, the story of Jesus, the Son of God. That This is really the story of Jesus and what Jesus has done. The second main theme or one of the themes that we see as well is really the great power and authority that's given to Jesus. So it's not just the centrality of Jesus, but there's something very important Mark wants us to know about Jesus. Is that Jesus has all power and all authority. That becomes very evident, obviously, in all the miracles that Jesus is doing Jesus casting out demons, Jesus doing all these unbelievable, incredible things. He has all power, all authority over all things from the demonic realm, in which everybody is powerless against, but also over the natural realm. In other words, he speaks to storms, and storms stop. And, you know, when people see somebody speaking to nature, and nature listens, every first century Jew, that would immediately cause their minds to hearken back to Genesis 1. When God speaks and nature listens. These are all little echoes in which Mark wants us to be very much so in tune to the fact that Jesus is not just somebody, and he's not just the central theme to which he's literally writing this gospel account around, but that Jesus has all power, all authority. However, this all power and all authority nature of Jesus is to be always contrasted and always placed within the context of the vulnerability and the humility of Jesus. It's always the case. And it's one of the things that Jesus starts to, and has started, as we've seen over the past few weeks, started to introduce to his followers. Because he'll start saying things like this. Yes, I'm king. Yes, I have all power. Yes, I have all authority. But I'm going to die. I'm not just going to die. I'm just going to jump off a cliff and die. But I will die by way of the most heinous, most wicked, most... Uh, stripped of all dignity, value, and respect, form of murder by way of dying on a cross. And every time Jesus reminds us of these little statements, what he wants us to very clearly be aware of and understand is that these are all ways by which he's reminding us of the fact that he is vulnerable and he's full of humility. So that's another one of the great themes that we need to understand. Another one of the themes that I would point out is this, is that Jesus comes bringing a kingdom of peace. All right, this is always seen every single time Jesus does something. He'll go into some arena that's full of chaos, and this is contrasted with the kingdom of, of chaos, which is dominated by, Jesus is going to tell us, by Satan himself, by the devil. But Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And every single time Jesus goes into a particular arena or a scenario, whether it's a storm, 
He'll speak, and what happens? There's a, there's a peace that comes into the, the domain, the kingdom, the area, the region. Uh, or there's somebody overtaken by a demonic presence or a demonic force. Their life is full of chaos. We saw this a few weeks ago. There's a little boy who was possessed by a demon, and the father is describing the, uh, the symptoms of what happens when this demonic outburst takes place, and his son throws himself into fire and then tries to drown himself. And so you imagine this little boy has got scars, scabs, fear all over him. It's just nothing but pure chaos. And yet Jesus comes in, speaks, and brings peace. But Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of peace. This is amazing because this is, these are the themes, the general themes that Mark wants us to be aware of. That one, Jesus is the central authority or central name in all of these things. We'll see this pretty clearly in the text that we're going to read here today. And then secondly, we see that this great power and authority that belongs to Jesus is also contrasted with great vulnerability and great humility with Jesus. And then thirdly, we see that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of peace uh, contrasted with the kingdom in this world, which is one of constant ongoing chaos. So maybe that might be a description of some of your guys' lives today, right? I mean, some of you might look at your experience, your life, circumstances that you're facing today, no matter how small they are, no matter how big they are, and describe there's chaos, there's disorder, disorganization. Maybe that's what describes your health condition today, disorderly, chaos. Maybe that's your financial position right now, chaos. You're radically in debt. Might be because you've done some foolish things, but nonetheless, you're in debt. There's chaos. Maybe that's where your family is, your kids are, your relationships are with your spouse. Chaos. But you need to understand something. What Mark wants us to understand is that when this king comes, this, when this king arrives, his kingdom, his king domain, that's what a kingdom is. It's the domain of a king. When this king arrives, his domain is one of peace that pushes back the chaos, pushes back the evil, pushes back the darkness by challenging those forces head-on, headlong, and overthrowing them. That's absolutely beautiful to some of you to understand that Some of you have realized this. You've lived this. You've experienced this. You know what this is all about, and that's why you're here back again. You're joyful. God has changed you. Some of you know echoes of this. You've heard of this, but you've never actually experience it. I believe God wants to change you today. He wants to bring you into this kingdom that Jesus brings of peace. So again, all the way through this gospel, Mark wants us to really understand. He wants to bring us face to face with who Jesus is. One of the things that he's going to continue to do over and over again, he's going to challenge our presuppositions that we have about who Jesus is. We've been saying this all along. Mark wants to make certain that the Jesus that we see, the Jesus that we trust, the Jesus that we believe is not some sort of designer Jesus that we fabricated or created. Don't deceive yourself. We're all, we're all tempted. We're all prone to do that. We're all prone to sort of have a Jesus that meets our needs, that fits our lifestyle, that we cater according to ourselves. We edit him. Right? We edit the little Jesus we want. We like take bits and pieces of Jesus. We're like, I like the Jesus that's hardcore on evil and wickedness and sin is all about the rules and he's like a middle management guy walking around with this clipboard he's just looking for someone to just simply nix off you're going to hell i like that jesus ironically that's the way that you live and if you're a dad you treat your kids that way you treat your spouse that way 
you're a business owner, you treat your employees that way. You need to see the fullness of Jesus. Others of you are like, oh, I like the Jesus that's all loving and hangs out with little kids and plays with them in the street. And he never, he just seems so nice. Like, I like that Jesus. And you're so tolerant of sin and wickedness and evil. Anytime someone in your life is doing something wicked and you're watching them go on a downward spiral towards death, you're like, I don't want to say anything because Jesus is just so nice and I want to be nice. And, and that's not the Jesus that is revealed in the Bible either. So Mark writes for us this full story of Jesus. I realize I just maybe caricatured certain aspects of Jesus, but to make a point, you get the point. But the idea is this, is that we have to accept trust in the Jesus that Mark reveals to us. Otherwise, what happens is we create our own little Jesuses, and when our lives get confronted by chaos, that Jesus that we create can't help us because he doesn't exist. He doesn't, he's not real. Uh, we made him. He's a God that we made as opposed to a God that made us. So with that, we're going to jump in. I want to begin to continue to take a look at Mark's um, story about who Jesus is and what he's going to reveal to us. So I'm going to read to you sort of a, a fairly large chunk of passage or a chunk of scripture. Uh, I'm going to pick it up this morning at around verse 35. I realize some of these verses were ones that uh, Ben had taught through last week. Um, ben did a great job on it. I just want to sort of dovetail what we're going to be looking at today with some of the stuff that uh, Ben had talked about last week. There's some scholars that read this passage of Scripture and uh, see Mark as maybe even sort of putting together a bunch of hodgepodge of uh, what almost seems unrelated Scriptures together. We, we don't really know that for sure, but what are the, whatever the case is, Mark wants to tell us a story about who Jesus is. He wants for us to understand something about Christ. The Holy Spirit wants for us to understand something about Christ. That's why the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to write the story, to tell the story the way he did. So I want to make sure that we kind of uh, put this in the proper context here. So uh, I'm going to pick it around verse 35. I'll read down to the end of the chapter so you guys can follow along. If you would, we have Bibles in the back. If you don't have one, uh, please take one. We want to give that to you. We want you guys to all have Bibles. So uh, verse 35, pick it up, says this. And then he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and must be a servant of all. And he took a child and they put him in the midst of him and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such a child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Verse 38, and then John said, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And then Jesus said to him, uh, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water or a cup to drink uh, because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin or stumble, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and he were to be thrown into the sea. And if you... And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life crippled than to have two hands and go into hell to unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. 
where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. I'm going to pray. Jesus, I ask you that you'd help us just to understand what it means to be at peace with one another. God, we realize in a lot of ways that this is, this is our number one problem. We're not at peace. We're fragmented. Our minds are divided. Our hearts are divided. There's certain things we love. That There's other certain other things that we love. And they're always competing. They're always vying for attention. God, we're not at peace. We're not at peace in relationships. We're not at peace within our finances. We're not at peace within our homes. We're not at peace within our heart. We're not at peace with you. And yet, Jesus, you call us to be at peace with you. So we ask you that you'd help us understand how your kingdom is a kingdom of peace, how your domain is a kingdom which comes, pushes back chaos, pushes back darkness, pushes back wickedness, evil, sin, and death. And Jesus, I pray that you cause us to see that your kingdom has come, your kingdom is here, your kingdom is available for us to trust in and to be transformed by. So we... God, give you this morning, we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, one of the things that we talk about when we talk about Jesus being a king is that in some ways, it's, it's not, it is some ways a political statement. I just have to say that. It's somewhat of a political statement. Not entirely, because if you think of political in terms of like Democrat, Republican, Unitarian, whatever, um, libertarian, however you want to describe it, you're missing the idea. That you're actually taking the concept of politics and you're reducing it to something that you just are familiar with in our world. But the idea of Jesus being sort of a political leader is somewhat true. When it talks about the idea that he's going to be king of kings, he's going to be lord of lords, he will reign, he will be a king. He is a king. And his justice, his reign will be a good, just kingdom. In a lot of ways, this is something that all of us are looking for. It's kind of a funny thing. I mean, we, we are actually in, a, in an election year in which, obviously, we will be electing a new president. And uh, there's certain things that all of us think about when it comes time to electing a brand new president. In a lot of ways, it's the same type of things that I think Jesus' disciples would have been thinking about when it comes to talking about a brand new king. Now, the people in Jesus' day, they weren't unfamiliar with the idea of what it meant to be a king. I mean, they had several of them. Uh, there was one ruling out of Rome. All right, Caesar was a king. He wasn't a good king. He wasn't a king that they actually, the Jews, recognized as their king. Although they, they realized that they, they, they were oppressed, they were uh, obligated to recognize Caesar as a king, although they didn't like his kingship. Uh, they had another king uh, not too many years before Jesus came along. His name was Herod. He was actually described as the king of the Jews. He's a horrible king. The Jews hated him. Uh, he claimed to be sort of semi-Jewish. But as a means, as a way to try to build relationships with the Jewish people, he built the temple, built this huge, ornate temple. However, the Jews still hated him. And when Herod died, um, Herod basically divided the kingdom up amongst his sons and some relatives. And these guys were horrible kings. Jews hated these kings. They didn't recognize their authority over them. In fact, this perhaps might have been a little bit playing into what John the Baptist was all about when John the Baptist basically comes and uh, exposes one of the Herods as being sort of an adulterer. Um, 
It was perhaps um, John the Baptist's way of saying, no king of the Jews would ever do what this Herod has done. We refuse to acknowledge, refuse to accept this kingship. And what happens with John? He gets beheaded, right? That's what happens when you come in conflict with any types of kings, all right? So it's not that they were unfamiliar with, unfamiliar with kings. It's just that the way that they had understood kings needed to be redefined. And Jesus comes, and he basically says, I'm a king. And when Jesus uses this idea of defining himself as a king, his disciples had these preconceived ideas as to what the king would do. So there's no doubt in my mind that all of the disciples had this idea in their mind that Jesus, the new king, would come, he would fight a battle, he would destroy all the enemies, he would set up his kingdom, and then they would therefore rule and reign alongside of Jesus. They would pick up sword. They would basically take the new positions that all of these other advisors and counselors would have taken around Caesar's palace. So they had these ideas about what it meant to be for Jesus to be a king. But those ideas needed to go through editing. It needed to be changed because their ideas about what it meant for Jesus to be king was incorrect. But there's a handful of questions that oftentimes we ask during the time of electing a new king or appointing a new king. And they basically go like this. And these are the questions, ironically, that Jesus, I believe, or Mark is trying to point us to with regard to Jesus that are going to be asked. One of the questions is this is really, how does one identify true greatness? That's the big question. I've been watching the news a lot. One of the big questions on the news is doing all these interviews, and they're asking people, who are you going to vote for? What are you looking for in the next president? What are the issues that he, are you expecting him to tackle? Right? So the real question is, how do you identify greatness? What is truly great in your eyes? Another question is, how do you deal with the op opposition? How do you deal with the opposition? Because every new president or every new elected official or every new prime minister or king that comes into place always comes in place with a whole new list of agenda items that he says, she says, I'm going to take uh, to a whole new level because the former king or the former leader, former prime minister failed. They were our opposition. They failed. They didn't do a good job. So here's what we're going to do. So the question is, how are we going to deal with the opposition? How are we going to treat them? Third question oftentimes gets asked is, how do we depose of evil? How do we depose of evil? Because every new kingdom, every new reign, every new prime minister, every new governmental change comes in and basically has identified certain ideas that they would point as evil. For example, the Obama administration looked at George Bush. What did they identify with George Bush as being the evil that George Bush perpetrated? What's that? What? Financial crisis. You can say the war. There's a lot of things, like Afghanistan, right? And this is not about politics. I'm just asking nice, legitimate, honest questions, right? But the point of the matter is, is that the Obama administration would look at this and just say, these are evils. We've got to overdo these, overthrow these things, all right? Guantanamo, Guantanamo Bay is an evil. We've got to overthrow, overcome. This is evil we've got to deal with. So every new administration, every new kingdom, every new king always comes in and has some sort of idea as to what's evil and how the evil is going to be dealt with. Well, ironically, these are the exact same things that Mark points out, I think, in the text, that Jesus wants for us to understand. However, with Jesus, Jesus comes along because he's a king, but he's not a king like Caesar. He's not a king like Herod. And ironically, he's actually not even really much a king like David, other than the fact that he's in the bloodline of David, or actually he's part of the lineage of David. Other than that, King David was a king that had blood on his hands. So in a lot of ways, Jesus 
And when the Jews would think about a king coming in the lineage of like David, in their mind, they're like, he's going to be a conqueror. He's going to overthrow. He's going to destroy. He's going to crush his enemies. But when Jesus starts talking about things like, you know what? I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be betrayed. But I'm going to be betrayed in the most heinous, most uh, horrific type of a way that you could ever even imagine. His disciples just couldn't fathom it. They couldn't get it. They didn't understand it. But what Jesus wants us to understand is that if he is king, which he is king, he wants us to understand that his kingdom demands for us to have a new way of identifying all of these things. So I'll give you an example. These are three things that we're going to take a look at here. One, we need to take a look at the fact that Jesus' kingdom's Jesus' kingdom actually demands that we have a new way of identifying greatness. We have to identify greatness in a new way. This is where 35 and 37 comes in. Jesus' kingdom demands that we have a new way of dealing with the opposition. That's 38 through 41. And finally, Jesus' kingdom demands that we have a new way of deposing of evil. How we deal with evil. What really evil truly is. And what are the consequences of not dealing with evil. These are the issues. Jesus wants us to understand. So in other words, put it this way. If Jesus is your king, if you're looking for a king, if you want a king, you have to look at what kingdom means in Jesus' way, and this is what Jesus is going to redefine it. One thing that you'll identify throughout all of the gospel mark, but is in particular in Jesus' description as to what a kingdom is, is Jesus redefines kingdom and what it means to be king, what it means to be great around himself all the time. So let's jump in. Let's get to work. Let's start taking a look at this. The first thing I want to take a look at is Jesus demands that his kingdom be seen in a new way in terms of identifying what greatness is. I'm going to go through this very quickly, and uh, I think it's pretty self-explanatory, but I want to just make some statements about it. Again, Jesus sits down with his disciples, and um, he begins to talk to them about what it means to be the servant of all. But the real issue is because they have just been, his disciples have been arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Again, Ben taught this last week, so you guys can uh, go online, check out the podcast. It's free. Uh, we want to give it away to people. That's because we like you. We want you to have God's word for free. So uh, check out the message. But the point of the matter is this. They're arguing amongst themselves. Who's going to be great? Jesus sits them down. He's like, you guys want to know who's going to be the greatest? Like, yeah. Tell us. He's like, the slave. They don't get it. They're like, the slave. No, 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 no. Our understanding of greatness is a dude with a sword in his hand, big chain mail, big armor on his body, all right, strong, muscular, ripped abs, all right, this is the identification of greatness, the guy that slaughters the most enemies. That's the greatest. Jesus is like, nope. The real great person in my kingdom is a servant of all. To demonstrate his point, Jesus goes out, takes a child, little child, the particular Hebrew, or Greek word that's used there describes a young child, maybe an infant to maybe a toddler, sits it on Jesus' lap, Jesus embraces his child, and what Jesus then goes on to say is he says, um, whoever receives once a child in my name, it's very important to note that in my name, Jesus is, again, redefining everything around himself. He says, whoever accepts or receives one of these child's child uh, in my name um, receives me, but whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So here's what Jesus is saying. Receive a little child in my name, in this particular way, you're not just receiving me, but you're actually receiving my father. So here's the issue. What does it mean to receive a child, all right? Now, back in the first century, children, in a lot of ways, were viewed as sort of uh, property. Um, a lot of it was a very agrarian type of a culture. And so you would have children, you would have a lot of children, and the idea of having a lot of children was that one of these days, these children were going to help you milk the cows and 
you know, harvest grain and, you know, be a part of the family business, right? That's, so you had a lot of kids. And so in a lot of ways, children were not viewed as very valuable until they started being able to contribute to society, all right? Like age eight, all right? Um, you know, where they're able to, like, start going out early in the morning, helping dad milk the cows, doing what they got to do, all right? And uh, so the point of the matter is, is until that point, they didn't contribute much. They were worthless, in other words. They just kind of hung around. They cried, and they whined, and they complained, and demanded a lot. They didn't ever really give much back. They didn't contribute much to society. They didn't really contribute much to the family. Think about it this way. Um, all of us have been in a place where you've been at a restaurant, and you're just enjoying your nice meal, and all of a sudden, the family comes in, right? Right? They got a little baby. The baby sits down and starts crying. You're like, this is ridiculous. This kid has just ruined everything. Everything. It's crying. Mom and dad aren't doing anything. And, and we feel a little bit annoyed. And so the point of the matter is, what Jesus is saying is that the reality is that little children have this tendency to demand a lot, but not give much back by way of contribution. They don't help that much. But Jesus says, if you receive one of these little ones who has nothing to give, you begin to understand my kingdom. To be able to love somebody that has absolutely nothing to contribute is the beginning stages of his kingdom. In each one of us, is a desire to be loved. But you know what? The older we get, the better we are at being able to... Um, Build up our exterior. And what I mean by that is, is some of us physically do that. We work out. You know, we get implementations to our body, whatever. You can let your mind go as far as you want with that. But the point of the matter is we do things. We buy things. We buy cars. We, you know, make sure our lawn is nice and green. And we work really hard. And we do all these things because underlying much of this effort is the desire to be loved. We want to be appreciated. We want somebody to just accept us. We want somebody to approve of us. We want somebody to acknowledge us. We are trying in our own efforts, in our own works, to be saved. But the heart of the gospel, Jesus says, the kingdom that I bring is one that loves those who have absolutely nothing to contribute. Jesus' kingdom so high, so profound, so powerful that he says, my kingdom is about being a servant of all. Giving to people who have absolutely nothing to give back. Loving people who are unlovable. Serving people that aren't even worthy of being served because they have nothing to offer back. And this is what he's saying. So Jesus is saying, we have to have a new way of identifying greatness that involves recognizing greatness in a different light. This is how Jonathan Edwards puts this. One of my favorite preachers, he says this. Jesus is good, or I'm sorry, Jesus is God, and therefore uh, has all the attributes of God. In Jesus is infinite highness and infinite condescension. The word condescension basically just means infinite humility. It's an old way of just saying unbelievable, infinite, incomprehensible humility. That in Jesus is infinite highness and infinite condescension. He is infinitely great, high above all the kings of all the earth, for he is king of kings and lord of lords. And I love this. Yet Jesus condescends to wash our feet, even the feet of sinners who think so highly of themselves. This is amazing. 
this is the picture of our God. This is the message that Jesus comes preaching, not just speaking as if he's a prophet, but he comes living, embodying. This is absolutely amazing. No other God, no other king, no other religious leader has ever done anything like this. There's something about this that's amazing. When we see somebody, you know, I'll give me an example. You guys ever seen the movie or the, or the movie, the program called Undercover Boss? All right, if you haven't seen it, you got to go figure out some way. I, I don't know if it's ABC that puts it out or makes it. You might be able to go on their website, just watch a couple episodes. It's worthy. It's a worthy program to watch, all right? In our family, we have television ratings. Like, we have stuff that's just, like, worthless, all right? Uh, and then it's stuff that's kind of not that, it's not bad, it's not necessarily good, but, and then there's stuff that's like really good. We, we put Undercover Boss in that like really good category. It's like worthy television you can actually watch, and I'll put my stamp of approval on it, all right? The basic storyline is this, is that a CEO of a large company, and, and the one we watched the other day, um, uh, it was like Dish Network, I watched another one, okay, it was um, Baja Fresh, right? Is that the place that went out of business here? Baja Fresh. The CEO of Baja Fresh goes undercover and starts working with all of his employees all around. Nobody knows it's him. They have no idea that it's him. And to me, the, the greatest climax of the entire program is, is when he actually unveils himself to the employees that he's been working with. It's unbelievable. Like, the whole plot line is unbelievable. It's so just gospel-centered. It's this idea of incarnation. God, who is infinite highness, becomes infinite condescension. To wash our feet. To join with us in our suffering. He's not this God that just barks orders out to us saying, yeah, life sucks. Figure out a way how to make it work. He's a God that says, I know life is terrifying. I know it's full of anxieties. I know it's stressful. I know it's difficult. I know there's suffering. There's pain. There's hardship. There's loss. There's death. He says, I will enter into your world Become like you, and I will suffer with you, ultimately suffer for you. This is our God. Jesus wants us to see a new way of identifying greatness. The second thing, got to move on, is dealing with opposition. Uh, Mark chapter 38, verse 41, it's kind of an interesting little story. What happens is Jesus is with his disciples, and then all of a sudden we're told in verse 38 that John speaks out. He says, teacher, rabbi, Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we try to stop him because he was not following us. But then Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward speak evil of me. For the, uh, the one who is not against us is for us truly I say to you that whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So in other words, what's going on here is the disciples are walking along. John is one of the main core of Jesus' disciples. He recognizes sort of this unauthorized group of disciples. Doesn't know who they are, right? They're not part of his little team, his tribe. They didn't authorize him. John didn't like lay hands on them and like commission them. Who are these unauthorized people casting out demons in Jesus' name? This is not okay right? John's like walking with this swagger back to Jesus, like, Jesus, I rebuked this guy because he was casting out demons in your name. And Jesus is like, how uh, dude? It's all cool. It's, don't, don't worry about it. Like, like you, you are freaking out for no reason. You have a wrong definition of who the opposition is. It's funny to me that in the story that it says that he's casting out demons in your name, but 
He's not one of us. So the issue with John, for John, is that this unauthorized group of disciples, um, they weren't with John. And John's upset by this. So Matt, immediately what he does, he sort of labels him as the opposition, labels him as the enemy. He's totally wrong in his labeling, though. So what typically happens is, I think John, in a lot of ways, is just like us. We have these ways in our life where we desire to find greatness by the things that we do, by the way that we do it, by the methods that we employ, and the particular ways in which we employ these things, the methods that we use, these become sort of our identity. And anybody that does something else that sort of rivals that that is not authorized by us, it's not giving us the credit, not giving us the glory, we sort of write them off as the opposition. We demonize them. And here's what Jesus is saying. You're totally misunderstanding what the opposition is. You have wrongly identified the opponents. These are my opponents. They're casting out demons. And here's what's amazing to me, is when somebody becomes so um, insulated, so blinded by their own unique methods, ways of doing things, their own uniquenesses, what happens, and because, what, because these things become more than just simply methods, they actually become, I'd describe as like methodology. You make I- idols out of your methods. They become what define you. That's what an idol is. An idol is something which you find your identity in. An idol is something which defines you. In other words, if that thing's gone, then you feel as if you crumble. When your idol is attacked, you feel like you're personally being attacked. That's what happens with an idol. And so I think what was going on here in John's mind, he's looking at watching these other unauthorized people do things. He hasn't authorized them. He hasn't commissioned them. And John's upset about this. He has his own sort of unique, franchised way of doing things, and yet he's frustrated by this. And again, what happens, I think, to most of us is we have sort of these ideas by which how we should do things, and when anybody does things that's not consistent with us, we feel threatened. And it's not just feeling threatened. We feel like we need to go rebuke somebody then. And this is oftentimes what happens, I think, even in religious circles. This is where I think, to be quite frank with you, the way some denominations can actually become. They don't have to be, but they become this way. Where you have certain ideas, certain ways by which you say, here's how we do church. And if you don't do church the way that we do it, or don't do church the way that we had grown up, seeing it done, having it watched, or having it modeled in front of us, if it's not being done in that particular same brand, same style, same franchise format, then you're our enemy. We'll gripe, we'll complain, we'll become cynical. And what Jesus is basically saying here is that you have your eyes set on the wrong opposition. They're not your enemy. They're casting out demons. What's amazing to me is that when this particular type of thing happens, and one of the ways in which you can know if this is you, is can you rejoice in the good that God's doing all around, even if it's not under your own control? If it's done by somebody else, can you rejoice in it? I mean, can you actually genuinely, legitimately look at it and be like, this is amazing. God's doing incredible stuff. Like, I'm rejoicing what God's doing here. So what Jesus even goes on to say, he's like, look, there's going to be people that are going to cast out demons, but then there's also going to be people that give cups of cold water. So Jesus is not concerned so much about just the great works, but also the good works. It's not just great deeds, but it's good deeds. It's the simplest deeds all the way to the most profound supernatural deeds, anything that's done in his name, Jesus says, 
that's on my team. I think about this a lot because, you know, there's a lot of great churches in San Luis Obispo, a lot of great churches on the Central Coast. And there are brothers and sisters. I hope we're not the type of people that would walk out and be like, you know, Calvary slow, we do it this way, and nobody else should do it any other way because this is the right way. Don't, don't ever be like that. Look, we try as best to do the things that we do, man. It's not this, I mean, we try to obviously follow Scripture. We try to be and recognize that our God is a creative God, so we try to use different forms of creativity. Whatnot. But the point of the matter is at the end of the day, there's no like real cookie-cut way by which necessarily certain things should be done. They're methods. There's methods and principles. The principles should never change. Those are rock solid. Those are embedded in the gospel. Those are embedded in God's word. They should never be modified, transformed, changed. But the methods can change. In other words, if you take this church and try to transplant it and do this in, like, say, China, it probably wouldn't work. It would bring a lot of governmental attention to itself and a lot of people would get arrested because I don't think you can do church like this in a place like that. So you got to figure out a new method, new way. Taking the timeless principles, bringing them into a new culture. But the bottom line is this, is that we should never have this sort of attitude that looks at other people that do things, different methods, again, staying true to the principles of the gospel, but different methods and somehow demonizing them. We've got to be careful about that because that's part of us. And if we do that, one of the reasons why we do that is because we, I think, perhaps are committing methodolatry. We are worshiping our methods. We view our methods as the main means by which we meet God. And I see this happen even in, even in churches like, like us, like where we can kind of have these ideas like, you know, unless we have the songs up at the front of the service or at the end of the service, when they change it up, I freak out because I can't worship Jesus anymore. You know, if the songs are too long or, you know, the lights are too dim, I can't worship Jesus. Look, the bottom line is this. Just, for one, take a deep breath. It's all good. The world isn't going down. The church isn't going to shut its doors. Jesus is still on the throne. There's different methods. It's all good. Maybe make sure that what you're not doing is committing methodology, worshiping methods. And it can happen in older generations. It can happen in younger generations. Be careful about that. The final thing that I want to take a look at is this. Is, um, again, we take a look at Jesus has his kingdom, and he wants us to understand his kingdom that we have to have a new way of identifying greatness. We have to new, have a new way of dealing with opposition. And then the final thing is we need to have a new way by which we depose of evil. And so what this means is that we have to understand something about what evil really is, or the root of all evil. And I've said this before, that just on a natural level, all of us have some sort of idea in which we identify evil. I mean, we saw this back during the time when the Twin Towers were collapsed by way of an act of terrorism. Immediately following that act of terrorism, you have the American government being very quick to look at other axes of evil, but the... the I mean, there may be truth to that, but the point that I want to make is this, is that the implication can very quickly go to this point of saying, we're righteous. They're evil. We need to somehow hunt down the great evil and defeat it. Ironically, the Muslim world is also at the same time looking at America and saying, no, they're the great Satan. We're the great appointed ones to defeat and overthrow the great Satan. So what happens is evil's never really deposed of. It's just repackaged, it's rebranded, and resold. That's all it is. It's never dealt with, it's never overcome, it's never crushed, 
It's never defeated. It just still remains residual. It still is underlying the surface. And we do the same thing even in personal ways in our lives. The real issue is we need to know how to deal with evil because all of us have evil. All of us see evil. All of us have to some degree some identification of what evil is. We can identify it. We can spot it. Unfortunately, a lot of us fail to spot it in the most appropriate places. And this is where Jesus cuts really hard, very close to us. Listen to what he says. Verse 9, 20, 42 to 50, he says this, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone hung around his neck and cast in a sea. And then he goes on and he describes, he says, but if your hand caused you to sin, cut it off. Uh, he talks about his foot. If you have a foot and it caused you to sin, cut it off. If you have an eye that caused you to sin, gouge it out. It would be better for you to go in to eternal life having one eye or one leg or one, eye or, or one hand uh, rather than to be cast into this Gehenna fire where it's unquenchable fire and the worm doesn't die. In other words, a couple, there's a lot that's going on here right now. I could spend an entire couple hours on this. So I'm going to try to be as succinct as I can. And I want to try to point out a handful of things. One, um, I'll try to go through, take a look at the next slide. And I want to point out a couple of things. One, uh, when Jesus is talking about this kingdom, he talks about entering into the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. But then he talks about going to Gehenna. Again, we get this idea of the kingdom that Jesus is bringing is uh, what some scholars would describe as both now, but also future. There's sort of a hereness in terms of the kingdom that has already uh, begun, that has already been inaugurated, has already begun to develop and to move forward, but there's also a final fulfillment of this kingdom one day. We describe that as when Jesus comes back again. That's a great hope that we have in the church. We look forward to when Jesus is going to come back again. So we see that in certain displays of the fact because Jesus says this kingdom is coming. It would be better for you to enter this kingdom than to have you know, both feet and be cast into hell, which is an implication of something yet future. All right? So let's take a look at a handful of things. One, take a look at millstone. Uh, this Greek word is mulos. It's, uh, take a look at the next slide. We'll come back to the slide in a second here. Um, a millstone is this. It's the big upper stone that's kind of attached to that donkey, all right? So that stone is what Jesus is talking about. He said, be better for someone who causes one of these little children, one of these little ones to stumble. The word stumble is the word scandal on. Uh, means to be scandalized. Something scandalous happens. Uh, it'd be better for you for someone to have this thing uh, tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. I want you to think about what gentle Jesus all right, sweet Jesus just said here. All right, this is equivalent to saying it'd be better for somebody to like climb up into the electric chair and just flip it on, all right? Strap himself in. It'd be better for somebody to just kill themselves in the most horrific type of a way than for someone to cause one of these little ones to be scandalized. This is shocking language. I mean, and it's intended to shock the audience. Intended to shock the hearers. Okay, go back to the, uh, the next... Uh, this slide. So Gehenna, he talks about Gehenna. Um, again, I want to understand this in the context, and I'll try to fan it out a little bit into the broader context. Uh, Gehenna literally means, in the Greek, it means the Valley of Hinnom. It's Ho Gehenna. It's the idea of, um, uh, to the south of the city of Jerusalem is this large valley called the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, this has a long history. It goes all the way back to the time of Joshua, back to the time of um, Jeremiah the prophet, uh, where they would offer sacrifices. They're, they would offer their children to uh, these false gods, these false deities. Um, during the time of Jesus, it had sort of evolved into more like a dump. 
So if you had trash, you would take your trash to this area, the Valley of Hinnom. There was a big wall. You would throw it over the wall, and there'd be someone down there. They would always be lighting these fires and always burning the trash. So there was this perpetual, perennial uh, billows of smoke, obviously, except for when it rains, uh, going up um, all the time. And, and you'd imagine all the lowlifes would be out there digging through the trash. It was just a horrible place. It, it just depicted people that were just identityless, people that were just the lowlife scums of the culture going out there, uh, rummaging through the trash and the debris that's out there. Uh, it was a place that nobody wanted to have a house overlooking the Valley of Hinnom, right? Someone's like, hey, I got some really cheap property. Overlooks Hinnom. Like, you don't want to buy that, all right? No matter how cheap it is, horrible place. Um, it becomes sort of a, a, a metaphor of a place of judgment. Sometimes people will ask, uh, is hell a literal place where there's worms that never die? Personally, no, I don't think so. I really don't. I think it's a metaphor for something far worse. It's, something, it's a metaphor for something far worse. That's what a metaphor is. Whenever you use a metaphor or an idiom, it would be kind of like someone being able to, to say to a king, be careful how you govern this country because it may end up like Auschwitz. What does that mean? Like those of us that are post-World War II were like, oh, yeah, it's not good. Nobody wants anything to look like Auschwitz. All right, uh, maybe that's a little bit far removed for us because we, most of us, are younger, don't have sort of the shock value of that. It might be like those living in and on the central coast of California, you're like, careful how San Luis Obispo goes because it might end up someday becoming like Stockton. You're like, oh, okay, we don't want that to happen. Like, we've got to say no to Walmart. We've got to just know, not allow these things to happen because we don't want to become like that, all right? You get the idea. Anyways, no offense if you're from Stockton. Okay, let's get back on track. The point I would make is this, is that it becomes a metaphor for a place of suffering, a place of torment, a place of grinding of teeth, a place of destruction, a place of just lifelessness. It's a place that Jesus is identifying that someday in the future there will be a point of judgment and it will be horrific. And the best metaphor Jesus can use to identify it is, is like the valley of Hinnom. Uh, next one is unquenchable. We actually get the English word asbestos from this, which is kind of interesting. The word um, bestos uh, means to be extinguished. The Greek letter A always means a negation. So it means that it will never be extinguished. And then Jesus uses these phrases several times to be thrown out, like having a millstone tied around your head, neck, thrown out, cast off, having your hand cut off, having your foot cut off, or plucked out, having your eye plucked out. So there's a theme here that Jesus is basically trying to say. That if there is sin, if there is something that is going on in your heart that is causing others to sin. So I would imagine when the disciples first heard Jesus say this, when he says, um, anyone who causes one of these little ones to sin, um, let him have a millstone tied around his neck and cast off into the sea. I would imagine these guys are like, yeah, no one should cause a little kid to stumble and become sinful. Nobody, it's horrible. And then Jesus says, and if you have a hand that causes you to sin, cut it off imagine they're like what Jesus does here is something so quick so powerful so profound he says sin is out there but sin is also right here it's right here it's right here it's right here sin is not this issue that I can just simply identify in my spouse 
or my next door neighbor, or another nation full of people that are very unlike me, or another religious group. It may be out there. It may exist out there. It may be there. It may be prevalent. But real sin, real issues of offense, real issues of struggle in what can destroy our soul and shrink our soul and separate us from this God and his good purposes for our life is, is resident inside me. So serious as Jesus is about this, he turns to his disciples and says, if your hand, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I would imagine if I was like John sitting right there, I'd be like, look at my hand, I'd be like, hey. This overwhelming sense of uneasiness. Again, is Jesus speaking literal? No. I think it's metaphorical. Almost every single scholar would admit to this. Jesus is speaking and hyperbole making a point. No one's gonna, none of his disciples are gonna cut off their hands, cut off their feet, gouging out their eyes. But it's to make a point that sin is so serious, so destructive, and yet it needs to be overcome. And the way that it needs to be overcome is by being cast out. And what Jesus is doing by setting up his kingdom is he's saying, my kingdom is not like Caesar's, it's not even like David's in a lot of ways, and it's not like Herod's. My kingdom is a kingdom that's completely different than any other kingdom you've ever known. My kingdom is a kingdom that recognizes greatness in an entirely different light because the greatest in my kingdom are the servants of all. My kingdom is a kingdom that actually embraces those who are viewed as the opposition. My kingdom is a kingdom that actually deals with sin on the most strictest, most profound level, not just by covering it up, not just by silencing the bad dudes, not just by somehow rallying together national pride and saying we're going to march together and destroy the wickedness outside our borders. Jesus says, my kingdom is a kingdom that deals with sin on the most innermost level. And the way that Jesus does this is absolutely amazing because if you step back from the total storyline and narrative of the gospel of Mark, you begin to realize the way that Jesus does this is that Jesus ultimately will be the one who will become the servant of all. And on the cross, you see the greatest of all taking the form of the least of all to become vulnerable. On the cross, what you see is Jesus coming to those who have offended him, to those who have sinned, as we described, like in the next slide, I want you to see this. I'll just read it to you because basically what happens is on the cross, the way Jesus is going to deal with evil is not by rising against his enemies, ultimately to crush them, but to make himself vulnerable, to humble himself before them so that they will in turn crush him. What you see on the cross is that Jesus is not going to cast out the wicked doers, the evil doers, the sinful ones, but Jesus in turn himself will be cast out. Jesus himself will be cut off. Jesus himself on the cross, hanging on the cross, enters into this thick darkness, blackness, and the picture is that he is in outer darkness. Why? Mark always wants us to keep asking that question. The reason why Jesus was cut off, the reason why Jesus, the king, who is greatest of all, became least of all, was so that you and I, who are the least of all, who are broken, who are oppressed, who are part of the sin issue, can become elevated and raised, washed, cleansed. Those of us who deserve to be cut off can be brought in, brought near, 
who were once formerly enemies can be brought in to become friends. That the Son of God was cut off so that we who are not sons of God and daughters of God can become sons and daughters of God. This is absolutely amazing. It's like what Jonathan Edwards says, that consider the infinite greatness of God, but the infinite condescension of this God who comes into this world to do this for us. Let me say this in summary and close. To the degree that you see this, believe this, and changed by this, you'll be free. You will be free to stop making yourself great and you can become a servant of all. You will be free to stop looking around, sniffing around for who all are your opposers. You can go out and embrace them, love them in the name of Jesus. To the degree that you see this and are changed by this, you will be the type of person who will gladly risk all, even to the degree of cutting off things that are good things in your life for the one who is great. To the degree that you see this gospel, this good news that's been announced through Mark and are changed by this, you'll be changed. You'll forgive people who even though in your mind you're like, they don't deserve to be forgiven. You can befriend people because even in your mind you're like, they don't deserve to be friended. They have nothing to offer me. That's the point of the gospel. You have nothing to offer God. And yet he reached out got on his knees, welcomed you on his lap, and embraced you. To the degree that you see that he's done that to you, you are free to do that to others. This is why our God is so great. I'm going to pray. I'm going to have the worship team come on up. We're going to finish and respond. We'll partake of communion if you'd like. We have it in the back. If you're a Christian, I invite you to partake of it. If you're not a Christian, there's a lot of things that we can do together on Sundays. We can sing. We can hear the message. But communion really is a meal that commemorates what Jesus did for us on the cross. It's a meal in which we remember his great love. I want to invite you. Why don't we all stand? And we're going to sing together. And what I want to do is I want to pray over all of us. Because, you know, I can single some of us out and be like, who wants to be prayed for? But the reality is, is that some of you would stand up, the rest of you would be like, I don't need to be prayed for. And the reality is, we all need to be prayed for. Like, this is all of us here. Because all of us have people in our minds that we've already marked out as, they're the evil one. It might be your spouse. You're like, as soon as they change, I'll change. As soon as they start treating me nice, I'll start treating them nice. What you need is you need to know the gospel. You need to see what Jesus has done for you. He didn't look at you and say, as soon as you change, I'll change you came to us while we were yet sinners and embraced us. I want to pray over each one of you and we're going to close in a song of worship. If you'd like to partake of communion, I invite you to do that. God, I just want to thank you right now that all of us here today, God, have some level, huge level of need in our lives to recognize the gospel, to recognize that through Jesus' great love for us, he's embraced us. God, we want to believe that so that we would be changed, that we would see that we are loved beyond comprehension. We're loved. And that love was demonstrated while that we were yet sinners, still sinners, still in sin. Christ died for us on the cross. 
God, we need to know that we are loved, not by what we do, not by what we own, not by the jobs that we perform, not by what we've done, but by what you've done, Jesus. That we would see that, embrace it, and be changed by it. So I pray for all that are here this morning, God. I ask that you'd help us to see this.